It's an honor to open God's Word with you at the beginning of this focus on God's mission of reaching the nations, especially during this challenging time. Missions is central to God's heart for the world. So central, in fact, that the scholar Chris Wright makes this astounding claim that missions is what the Bible is all about. Full stop. What's the story of the Bible? God's mission. Dr. Wright says this means that we participate in God's mission as his people, at his invitation and his command, in his mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. That makes this week a rather important time in the life of the Kirk for God's people as we consider how he would invite us to participate in his mission as his people for the redemption of his creation at this moment in history. God's mission touches all of creation, all of history, and it's what the Bible is all about. That will be our focus this morning, and we'll look at mission through the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13 that Cheryl just read, where Jesus tells three parables of the kingdom, final parables he uses in answering the question, what is the kingdom of heaven like? The disciples know what the Roman kingdom is like, but here's Jesus, God's eternal king, bringing his kingdom. And on the minds of the disciples is the question, what is his kingdom like? So we consider these parables together. Jesus will give us some pretty clear answers. But as we start, let me pray for our time together. Pray with me. Father, let the words of my mouth meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer, whose mission has reached to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have the sermon outline, uh, it's three points. Of course, first point is the kingdom comes only through the grace of the king. Two people, two different people, in these first two parables, people doing ordinary, humdrum, daily life. One, very unremarkable, Jesus just refers to him as a, a man, just going through his day. The other, a merchant, going about his daily enterprise. One, one not looking for anything. The other one, searching. Different classes, different statuses, different walks of life when suddenly life changes in a dramatic and seismic way for each of these men. They each find unexpected riches beyond their imagining because the transaction that each makes shows that what they have discovered exceeds all of the resources they can muster, right? This is more to them than all they have, more than all they could have. It's so exceeding in its value. It's a kind of value that changes your life forever. A couple in Northern California a few years ago walking their dog on their property, and they saw something sticking out of the ground. They dug it up, 
and uh, pried open this container, and inside they found perfectly preserved $20 gold pieces from the 1890s. Of course, they started digging more, right? <laughs> what would you do? They found seven more containers, a total of 1,400 gold pieces from the 1890s. Face value, $28,000. Value today, $10 million. If you were scouting that land, found that stash of coins, how would that change your life? What little treasures of yours would you trade for that big treasure? All of them, right? I would. I, if you're like me, you'd mortgage the house, cash in your 401k, call every family member, ask for, a, ask for a loan, probably hot grandma's silver. All my little treasures, every single one, and gladly trade it for the treasure. Not grudgingly, but enjoy, the text says of the first man. Joy, joy in finding unexpected and otherwise unobtainable treasure for either of these two men, regardless of class, regardless of diligence in searching or not searching, the joy experienced from the exhilaration of obtaining what is unimaginable, life changes when that happens. You've got all you need for your life. No worries about the future, free from cares, hope for your life. About a year BC, before COVID, I was working from home, uh, and Colleen, uh, my wife, was in the other other room, and she called out from the other room, looking at her computer. She said, "Honey, do you know anything about this two and a half million dollars that showed up in our bank account?" <laughs> what? I looked at the statement on the computer and sure enough, she pointed to the entries. Yep, there it was, two and a half million dollars. First thought was, wow, that's a mistake. Second thought, two and a half million, huh? Of course it was a mistake. Took a few days to straighten out. But just the presence of it in our account found me wrestling with joy and hope. What am I hoping in? Where's my joy? Jesus uses these parables, remember, to explain the kingdom of heaven, the realm of his rule and his reign. And the disciples want to know, what's it like? And in the first of these parables, Jesus answers the question. The kingdom of heaven is both incomparable in its value and unobtainable through your own smarts or your own efforts. Each of these men were just going about their daily lives when the treasure was literally placed right in front of them. And the point Jesus is making is that his kingdom is an exceedingly great treasure, one we can never make our own through our own effort. All we have or ever would have or could have can't compare to its value. As Paul says in Philippians 3, count everything as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Compared to the kingdom of heaven, Paul says, add up all my assets, everything I have, doesn't just pale in comparison, it's garbage. Compared to that treasure. How is that possible? 
I mean, how does that even happen? The cynic in me cries, hey, there's no free lunch. Treasure doesn't just materialize. Treasure of the kingdom doesn't either. Without pushing the parables too far, there is a sense in which in telling these parables, Jesus is describing himself through the man and the merchant. First, each gives everything they possess to get the treasure, right? Doesn't that best describe Jesus? 2 Corinthians 8, Paul writes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Who gave more than him? He impoverished himself, not to get you a larger bank account, but to obtain the treasure of the kingdom of heaven for you. And not long after telling these parables, Jesus is hanging on a tree, pouring out his life, poor, so that you might become rich. And the writer of Hebrews, writing in chapter 12, gives us the reason for this. He writes, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, right? Same word, joy. Joy in the transaction of securing the treasure of the kingdom of heaven forever so that you would find in it a joy that surpasses all others. So that you would have joy in the one who purchased it for you. I said earlier that neither of these two men could have dreamed of acquiring a treasure like this. Neither had the means or the ability. But someone had to pay. Someone bought that treasure, that pearl. And here he is. The ultimate one who paid the cost, emptied himself and paid full price in joy for you because you didn't have the ability to ever pay enough. Got it? You know what that's called? That's called grace. It's called grace. Grace bought through the poverty of a king to bring the treasure of a kingdom for all who would discover it. Which begs the question, what's really being exchanged here anyway? All of the assets of these two men, what do they bring to the table? And the prophet Isaiah answers, they bring polluted garments. All of your assets, filth. How do you obtain the kingdom of heaven, that treasure, with that? It can only be bought and given by grace and grace alone. You might be listening to me this morning, wrestling with the idea of the kingdom of heaven as the one treasure that surpasses everything else. Maybe we even know all the churchy answers to all the, all the churchy questions. But have you encountered this grace? Jesus doesn't tell us how many pearl merchants passed by this one pearl before this merchant found it. No doubt others came by and picked it up and looked at it and threw it back in the, in the pile. I learned in the pearl markets in Manila 
along with Cheryl. How do you tell if a pearl is real? You scrape it across your teeth. If it's, if it's rough and grainy, it's authentic. If it's smooth, it's a fake. Let me ask you this morning, have you scraped the good news of this grace across your heart? Or have you only formed an idea of what Christianity is about and then rejected it, thrown it back into the pile? How will you know the ultimate joy of the treasure of the kingdom unless you scrape it across your heart? Look, this merchant had been, had been looking and found what others dismissed and walked away from, and they never really knew their great loss. Maybe you've been looking in many places for what's true and valuable and beautiful. And Jesus says here, the kingdom of heaven is that all-surpassing treasure. You want truth? You want joy? The kingdom of heaven is the treasure you're looking for, the one you're longing for in your heart. So whether you're looking for it or not, regardless of where you come from or what you've done, whatever your social class political party affiliation, the treasure that far eclipses everything that you could ever earn through your own work. The kingdom of heaven comes to you through the grace of the king, the one who obtained it. And all of our little treasures fade in comparison. And Jesus says, look here, there's treasure. I bought that for you by my grace. Will you grasp it? The first point is a kingdom comes only through the grace of the king. Second, grace received brings deep joy. Notice the first man in the text, in, in the first parable, he goes away and sells all he has in his joy. And while that phrase isn't used of the second man, the merchant, we can infer from the wording in the transaction that it wasn't like my experience at a car dealership last month, where every little detail is begrudgingly negotiated. If you look at the verbs, the merchant went, sold all he had, and bought it. No negotiating. Like King Jesus, in his joy, he gave everything. See, joy is a result of obtaining surpassing treasure. It's so tied to the treasure of the kingdom, in fact, that the Apostle Paul uses it as a test with the Galatians. If you read the NIV uh, translation of Galatians chapter 4, Paul asks, what's happened to all your joy? He asks because their treasure had been eroded by false teachers and their joy had diminished. So then, joy is the test. You know what a test is? We've, we've lived a year of testing, right? You, drive up and they stick that wand into your brain and they move it around they clip it off in a little container and then you know in a few days you have it or you don't have it. It's a test. Joy is the test. If I've made the treasure of the kingdom mine through the grace of the king and that treasure eclipses everything else, it erupts in joy. That's how it comes out. Those are the words Jesus used. Joy. How is your joy? 
What do I mean by joy anyway? Do I mean something like just general happiness? I know I'm not always joyful. Lived in Atlanta two years. Get me in the wrong lane of traffic uh, in Atlanta, and I am not joyful. Here's a definition from Dr. John Piper. Joy is the clearest witness to the worth of what we enjoy. It is the deepest reverberation in the heart of man in the value of God's glory. What is joy? It's not the lack of troubles and adversity around you, but the reverberation in your heart of the value and weight of treasuring God through them. The deeper your heart is dug into the treasure of the kingdom, the more it reverberates with the glory of the king, the greater your joy. See, if if your heart is dug down on sand, it doesn't reverberate as deeply as if it's dug down in bedrock. I'm fascinated when I see those giant wind farms, and they're in all over the world, all different countries, huge propellers anchored to the ground. Right? Generating electricity as they just whoop, 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 and spin around, right? Well, I read about them online. And it turns out that those propellers are 40, uh, on average, 48,000 pounds. But the base is dug into a hole that's 30 feet deep and 60 feet wide and filled with 58,000 pounds of reinforcing concrete and two or uh, reinforcing steel and 250 cubic yards of concrete. See, those propellers are big, but the base is massive and dug deep into the earth in a hole the size of a house. Why? That's well, pretty obvious, right? Without being well dug into the earth, any wind stronger than a breeze would disorient it, or worse, topple it. If it's going to stand as the wind blows against it, it has to be firmly and immovably dug into the ground so it can stand whatever the gale that comes. Same with your heart. What causes it to reverberate. The deeper its base is dug and established on this treasure of the kingdom, the harder the winds of other treasures or other allures or attractions can blow and we don't fall over, we don't topple. Our joy doesn't ebb because our heart has a gracious treasure of the kingdom dug down deep in its base and the deeper it's dug into the gospel is my treasure the less other smaller things will attract me or blow me off course or topple me. Do you see? Grounding my heart in this treasure as the greatest treasure over all others sustains me because it reverberates with the value of God's glory, one that's built on this treasure, not trinkets. When our hearts are grounded in the trinkets of the world, our joy blows to and fro with the wind. It comes and goes as each new bauble or interest fades. Only hearts dug deep into the eternal treasure of our King's grace in giving us his kingdom brings joy that stands 
when the inevitable storms blow into our lives. The Apostle Paul, as he begins wrapping up his beautiful letter to the Romans, he starts wrapping it up in chapter 15, and he starts with these words. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. How does joy come? Through believing. Having your heart dug solidly into all of God's promises to you, bought by the grace of Christ. So if joy is the diagnostic, if, if that's the test, how's your joy? Is your heart dug deep into the eternal, immovable, incomprehensibly valuable treasure of the kingdom? Or do you have more digging to do? Jack Miller used to say, I, I preach the gospel to myself every morning. Somebody asked him why, and he said, because it, at night it all leaks out. <laughs> Same with me. Keep digging. Keep digging. With the help of the Spirit, remember the grace of the King. Stoke up those embers of joy in your heart. What you possess, if you belong to Christ, is priceless. So, the kingdom comes only through the grace of the king. Second point was, grace received brings deep joy. Last point, joyous grace becomes grace extended. Jesus tells three parables together here, not just two, and they are connected. Three parables of the kingdom of heaven. Ernie used to sing that song on Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. A treasure in a field, treasure in a pearl, and a net. How do these go together? And they do go together. Jesus connects them. He starts with the kingdom of heaven is like. And the second parable, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Third parable, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. So this third parable is a continuation of Jesus' description of the kingdom even though he's changed scenes. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea, gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. Interestingly, in the original language, in this first sentence, there is no subject casting the nets. And the object is very, very strange. If you line up different English trans translations, you'll see translators trying to, trying to figure this out. Forgive a very loose translation, but it reads something like this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net being thrown into the sea and gathering together every type of, not fish, the word used is genus. This word is translated elsewhere as family, or race, or offspring. When it was filled, was drug up onto the shore, and they sat down and collected the good in containers, threw the bad away. No subject of the sentence. Who's doing the throwing of the nets? Why isn't there a subject? Isn't it interesting? Jesus tells this parable to whom? His disciples, right? And his disciples are mainly what? 
What did he say to them five chapters before in Matthew? Follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Now in their joy in the king, they become fishers of Gainuses, races, all peoples, all nations. Here they are in the end of time, in the nets. What's the connection? Well, the first two parables focus on two men. The focus of the third parable is on the gathering of all peoples, families, descendants. The first two parables tell the beginning of the story of these two men, the third on the end of the age. What's the bridge? Think back to the man and the merchant. Jesus only told the beginning of their story, right? What happened next after they found the treasure? What do you think they did? What would you do? You sold everything in joy for the far surpassing value of this one thing. Now you go home, sit in your lazy boy, turn on the TV, have a microwave dinner, make it an early night, right? <laughs> That's not what I would do. 2016 USA Today wrote a piece called 12 Things Not to Do If You Win the Lottery. So if you win 300 million in the Powerball, whatever it is, now here, here are things you should not do. One piece of advice, tell everyone you know. Don't do that, they say. You don't want long lost Uncle Ned showing up at your door the next day. They write, if you win millions of dollars, chances are pretty high that you will want to brag about it and share some of your new joy. Hear that word? Joy. Why do they have to tell you not to do that? Because that's the first thing you want to do, isn't it? Remember what John Piper said, joy is the clearest witness to the worth of what we enjoy. It's how we're wired. We want to tell others. We want them to see the treasure we stumbled upon. Remember Jesus' encounter with the tax collector Levi? It's recorded in Luke chapter 5. Levi sitting there behind his tax booth, hated man, tax collector. And Jesus says to him, follow me. The treasure had come to Levi. Luke writes that Levi stood up, left everything, followed Jesus. Just like the man, the merchant. Where do we see Levi next? Levi goes on, Levi made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. What's Levi doing? He's throwing a party. Who's there? Tax collectors. What was Levi? Tax collector. Well, how do you suppose those other tax collectors happened to be at a dinner party at Levi's house? Obviously, Levi invited them. Called the caterer, ordered the food, cleaned the place, invited his co-workers, his friends, his neighbors. Why? So they could meet Jesus. Levi wanted everyone to know that he had found the treasure. Exactly the opposite of what USA tells you to do. Levi did exactly what we're wired to do. And our joy, share the news of our good fortune, talk about the amazing treasure with all the others who are still picking through the artifacts of, of culture 
in the marketplace looking for something else. He found treasure, and now here he was. Meet Jesus. In our joy of loving and valuing the treasure, we naturally share it with others. If you don't think that's true, win the lottery. See if you don't want to tell someone. Or more practically, next time you get to be together with a group of friends, listen to what you talk about most passionately. The treasure that most captures our heart is what comes out. I talk about food, talk about my wife, talk about my sons, my grandkids, all delights to me. But what is the treasure that surpasses all others for me, for you? What's the one that brings deepest, lasting joy? It comes out of us, out of the abundance of our hearts. Okay, back to the nets. Jesus, prom Jesus promises to make these disciples, these fishermen, fishers of men. He says, I'll take who you are, and I'll use you to help others see the treasure of the kingdom and the king. Like Levi, like the man, like the merchant. You see the pearl, you see the treasure in the land, and this joy of discovery fills your heart. Now what do you do? You go fishing. Who, who casts the nets and gathers the fish? You do. How do you do that? Like, like Levi did. You share your joy. Because the more ultimately that treasure captures your heart, the more you want others to have that same treasure. See? Notice who separates the good from the bad. Verse 49. It's the angels. And, and this is so beautiful. I'm not responsible for the result. See that in the parable? Fish of every kind, good fish, bad fish, some responded, some didn't, all gathered and drawn ashore. Who separates them? The angels. I'm not responsible for being clever and for talking people into the kingdom, being a great evangelist. I just need my joy to point others to the treasure. My joy in the treasure shining through me, how the fish respond, isn't up to me. But in my joy, I say, hey, look what's in this field. Look at this pearl. Let me tell you what I found. Let me tell you about the one who bought it for me. That's our task, is simply to go fishing, empowered by a Savior who gave everything to make you his. So what ties these parables together? Joy in the unmatched value of the treasure of the kingdom, in the grace of the king who bought it for us as we're deeply satisfied in our king. The kingdom of heaven is reflected through us, through our joy in it. What's the end of the picture in this parable? So it will be at the end of this age. Like I said earlier from verse 48, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea and gathered together every kind of descendant, family, tribe, which is exactly how John pictures it in Revelation 7-9. When he writes, at the end, looking at the end of time, he says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude no one could number. A great net, Right? from every nation, all tribes, and peoples, and languages. 
standing before the throne and the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. How did they get there? Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. And the nations see the treasure through the joy of his people as they spread out and fill the earth and declare the unsurpassable worth of our King. There are people around us, a growing number, if you read the recent Pew Research, who are further and further away from seeing the treasure. Shrinking numbers in America affiliate with any Christian church at all. And the number of nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, those who view themselves as religiously unaffiliated at all, grows. From 51% in 2009, today is 43%. And for the first time in America, religious of all types have fallen below the majority population. People in America, people on your street, need treasure. Many have formed ideas about Christianity and rejected it. They need the joy of running headlong into a king who would give everything to make them his. 43% may know something in America about that treasure. You know where that number is only 0.6%? Japan. 126 million people means 118 million have very little access to that treasure, that pearl. Very few treasure holders living out the joy of belonging to the king among them. In Bangladesh, it's 0.3%. And that's all people who call themselves Christian. 162 million people, so that works out to 157 million, with very few around them showing them the treasure. To adopt the words of Paul, Paul, how are they to believe in him whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone and going to them and showing them the treasure? Well, Azam Global Analysis from 2018 says that of all the Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims in the world, 89% don't even know a Christian which means of the 3.4 billion of these people in the world, 3 billion don't even know someone who knows about the treasure. Nobody to say to them, look, here's treasure in the field. Or that pearl is worth more than all we could ever earn. And our great privilege and task as the church is to go fishing among all these people in the world, holding out, the good news that a king has paid what I never could to make me his treasure so I would know the one unfailing hope, one enduring and eternal joy of the kingdom of heaven. God's mission is to extend this grace received to all nations, and that's a mission that continues. But what about COVID? It's been challenging. Some missionaries are in the United States longing to go back to their fields and they can't go. Some are on the field and need to come back to the United States for various reasons, care for sick family, and they can't. It's been very difficult for them. Please pray for missionaries who are on the field. But at the same time, 
the number of missionary candidates coming into Mission to the World in the last year to go serve somewhere in the world is the greatest number we've seen in the last eight years. And we're on track in 2021 to send more missionaries than last year. And in the midst of that, we ask the field leadership to get together and dream and, and pray about where God would have them extend and increase, expand their ministries that they're doing today. And when we added up the numbers from all of our fields, we believe God's calling us to plant 486 new churches in the world in the next 10 years. And that will require 714 new missionaries, people like me, people like you, to go share their joy of the treasure with another people in another place. So for some of us, the king will call us to go to places where this joy isn't known, where people need someone to point to the treasure, and there might be nobody for hundreds of miles around to do that. For the rest of us, we're called to send and support and encourage those that he calls with joy from the grace we have received because God's mission continues. It must continue to move us together toward all people, all nations, all, all Guinnesses, all families, here in America and around the world as we carry the news of Jesus, our treasure. And that's how the nets fill with every tribe and nation and people. So are you joyful? Is your joy a witness to the worth of the treasure of the kingdom of heaven? Is the kingdom of heaven the deepest reverberation in your heart of the value of God's glory? Because if we're to go fishing together, our hearts must be grounded deep in this capital T treasure of the gospel and reverberate with the worth of the king. This joyous grace we've received becomes the same grace we extend to all nations, to all families of the earth. And as Chris Wright says, this is what the Bible is all about. How he invites us to participate in his mission as his people for the redemption of his creation at this moment in history. All by taking our joy in the gracious treasure of the king and the kingdom to the world, to every people and nation by his grace. Pray with me. Father, this mission is yours. And you place that unsurpassing, unexpected, unobtainable value right in front of us because it has been obtained through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, may our joy be dug deeply into that. And may we be free rejoicing in what you've bought for us to go to all nations, to fill the earth with a declaration of your glory, for your glory, in Jesus' name.